Good morning. This is the reading of God's word from John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had not seen or that had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Good. Thanks, Stephanie. Good morning, church family. How are you doing? You guys good? It's good to see you. Uh, if you're new, uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors. Really glad to have you joining us here today. We as a church family have been going through the Gospel of John uh, since about September. We are going to continue in John through the rest of May and most of the rest of June. And uh, we'll be announcing this more kind of formally this afternoon at our family gathering. I uh, hope you can stick around for that. Come back, have a meal, and, and, and kind of get some updates on the church. But uh, we're going to spend our summer in the Psalms, uh, kind of looking at uh, some Old Testament worship and prayers that were given to us. Uh, we're looking at something, maybe, I don't, I'm not quite ready to announce it yet, uh, maybe a little short topical series here uh, at the end of the summer, early fall, and then we'll be right back into John for another year, uh, another nine months or so, uh, wrapping up just after Easter 2027. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, 2000, whatever next year is, 2019. Uh, but today we're in John chapter 9, and we're looking at this story of Jesus healing a blind man. We're going to kind of take it two weeks, uh, two parts, and, and this is the exciting part. I'm preaching part one today. Our very own Pastor Doug Freiberg is going to preach part two next week. So, so y'all better be here. You better be on time and you better bring, uh, you better treat him nicer than you treat me. No, I'm just kidding. But you, you're, you're, uh, you're in for a good teaching next week. I'm looking forward to that. Hey, can we just pray together and invite God to, um, even as we're talking about a man's eyes being opened, let's ask God to open our eyes so that we could see him and see his truth that he has for us. So let's, let's pray together. God, we thank you for <clears throat> this opportunity to gather. We thank you, God, that, um, that you meet us in our places of brokenness and suffering. God, I know that there is much in the American church where we try sometimes to pretend like everything is good and everything looks really good and shiny, but, but the reality is like we just sang, uh, Lord Jesus, we need to come to you just as we are. God, there's much in the, in the suburbs uh, where it's, it's all meant to look nice and tidy and, and clean and healthy. And God, the reality is that each and every single one of us comes today with places of weakness and brokenness and places where we are desperately in need of your grace. And so I ask God that you'd guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with your truth of your word. I pray you'd give us all soft hearts and I pray you'd give us all wide open eyes to really look at what is being said and look at what is being taught here today. 
uh, in this miracle, Lord Jesus, that you performed. And I pray that our worship would go to you and our attention would go to you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, pain and suffering, uh, this is why you got out of bed on a Sunday morning, right? Uh, Just the idea of pain is something that maybe we, we like to talk about in the abstract, it's something we like to talk about maybe in, in theory, but it gets really hard when we have to start talking about it personally. And I'm going to actually say this up front. Uh, this might be a little bit striking for some of you, but if you are in a significant season of pronounced suffering, you will not uh, offend me at all if you actually get up and leave and don't sit and listen to what I have to say, because there are some things I have to say that are going to be really hard for you to hear, in particular if you're in the middle of a season of suffering. So here's the thing about pain. Pain, when we experience pain, it shrinks our world. Everything around us shrinks. We can no longer focus on anything else going on around us. And there's a good thing of that, right? There's a good part of that because when, when you're experiencing pain, that means that something is wrong and it needs to be addressed. It needs to be dealt with. And so there's a prioritization that takes place. Yesterday, yesterday was my, was my anniversary. My wife and I've been married for 17 years yesterday. Yeah. And, uh, I was looking forward to a great day. We had some, you know, plans and all this stuff. And my children, my youngest two children, God love them, woke us up in the morning. They slept in a little bit. Happy anniversary, mom and dad. It was about as cute as you could possibly imagine until my youngest daughter jumped up on the bed, tripped and fell both knees right on me. Uh, and I yelled loudly and I, and she wept bitterly. She didn't, I was so sorry. I'm like, you didn't ruin my anniversary. It just started out differently than I thought it was going to. And, you know, just, it's just this pain. It just shrinks your focus. There, you, 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 you prioritize, you move stuff aside. Pain demands that you pay attention to the pain. But Jesus enters into our pain. And what Jesus says is there's something bigger. There's something greater. There's something beyond just the pain and the suffering that we're experiencing. That he has purposes for us. And that's the big idea we're going to see today is that Jesus is with us when we suffer. He enters right into our suffering and his purposes are good. And like I said a minute ago, it can be really hard to put these things together when you are in a season of suffering. And so uh, I just want to invite you to to be willing to let the guard down just a little bit so that we can hear what Jesus has for us today. I will remind you too, this is is, um, the sixth sign that Jesus has performed throughout the the book of John. You remember early on when, when Jesus turned the water into wine, it said this is the first sign. That was back in John chapter two. And it, when he healed the official's son in John chapter four, it was, you know, this is the second sign. And then John, he, he stopped saying this is the third sign, the fourth sign, the fifth sign. But, he, but he's kind of leading up to this big seventh sign, which we'll get to uh, 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 later after the summertime. But this is the sixth sign that Jesus is performing to show us who he is and to show us what he came to do. We're in this, this, this book of the signs and this is number six. And so just kind of be mindful of that as we go through that, that Jesus isn't just healing a guy just for the sake of healing him. He's doing so to point us to a deeper reality about his identity and his mission. So let's pick it back up in, in verse one. <clears throat> as he passed by, 
<clears throat> By the way, this is after they tried to kill Jesus last week and he hid himself and went out of the temple. Again, I have no idea how that happens, but it happens multiple times. So Jesus has passed by. He's in a different part of the city now. He saw a man blind from birth. So that's important to note. This isn't something that happened later. This isn't something that he, you know, he was in an accident. Uh, you know, it wasn't a job-related injury, nothing. It was blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? So let's just pause on that for a minute because that's a really interesting question, isn't it? I don't know, in our, in our culture, in our mindset, I don't know that that's the first question we would ask. We're probably more prone to ask a question, something like, hey, what could we do for this person? Or, or you know, what, what should be done? Or you know, maybe in our culture, what should somebody else do for this person? Or something like that. But they're wanting to know the cause. And this is a pretty, um, on the surface, if you look at it, we might, we might be kind of offended by that. What a rude question to ask. Why is he blind? Because he sinned or his parents sinned. But there's actually something good about asking this question. It's like, hey, what, what led to this? What's, what's going on underneath this? And there's something good about it where there's an understanding that there's a connection between human morality and suffering in the world. So when we look at physical suffering, when we stop for a minute, and, and I'm, I'm focusing in specifically on physical suffering right here, but it probably can apply to other areas as well. We can see that, that there's some different causes and one of them can be our own sin. Our own sin, our own sinfulness can lead to physical suffering. In, in the book of James chapter 5, uh, it talks about the elders of the church anointing people with oil and praying for their healing. And it says, and if you've sinned, confess it, receive forgiveness, and then the person who's sick will be made well. I can give you a simple example. If you abuse alcohol and drink too much, and then you get cirrhosis of the liver and you suffer, you, you can have a pretty easy case to be made for your own sinfulness leading to physical suffering. An easy case can also be made for other people's sin, even a parent's or a grandparent's sin leading to physical suffering. Uh, there's a story in 2 Samuel where uh, you remember King Saul hated King David, but King Saul's son, King Jonathan, was really good friends with King David. And there was all this turmoil and uprising. And there's a kind of a, a little bit of a miniature civil war happening. And there's Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, his little baby named Mephibosheth. And he's a baby at the time. It says his nurse was carrying him to run away from the fighting and the warfare. She tripped and she dropped him and he became Cripple, like lame from a very young age. And you're sitting there like, well, he didn't deserve it. He didn't do anything wrong. But because of the sinful choices of his grandfather, King Saul, Israel's in turmoil and he, he, he paid the price for that with his legs. We also can see that the Bible teaches us that sometimes physical suffering is direct result of spiritual attack. For any of you who were around years ago, when we went through the gospel of Mark, we talked about this in Mark chapter nine, this young boy who has an evil spirit that ha causes him to basically the way that Mark describes it, it almost looks like he has, you know, fits of epilepsy, seizures, foaming at the mouth, writhing on the ground. And it's caused specifically by an evil spiritual being. And Jesus in his grace and in his power casts the spirit out and the boy makes a full recovery. Sometimes physical suffering is a result of spiritual attack. Sometimes and this is the one we really don't like. Sometimes physical suffering is just mysterious. It's just a result of us living in a broken and a fallen world. <clears throat> I think of 
Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the thorn in the flesh. And commentators and scholars and pastors debate ad nauseum about what, well, what is the thorn in the flesh? You know what it is? It's a thorn in his flesh. I don't know. Like that's, that's all it is. We don't fully understand. But it, it does seem to me there's some sort of physical suffering going on there. And Paul says, man, I pleaded with the Lord multiple times. Would you take this away from me? And what does God say to Paul? Hey, my, my grace is big enough for you. I, I've got you. It's okay. Suffer well. <laughs> well, thanks, God. But it's just mysterious. We don't have a direct one-to-one correlation. See, here's the thing. We also exist in a society that is really bought into this idea largely of karma. Have you guys heard of karma? Uh, a simple definition would be a person's actions determine their fate. What you do leads to what you get. Now, karma in the bigger sense, if you're looking at it from Buddhism or Hinduism, it also has to do with reincarnation. So the choices you make and the actions you do right now are going to lead to your future destiny. So karma would look at this guy sitting there suffering and like, well, he must have really screwed up in a past life. He must have really made some bad choices. And you think like, oh, we don't believe in reincarnation in America as much, but we, we really have kind of adopted this idea of karma, What goes around comes around. Actually, uh, you can go on social media and you can find Facebook pages called Instant Karma. You guys know these types of videos? You can chuckle because some of them are darn hilarious, right? Uh, It's a guy and he's being a jerk to somebody and he's blah, 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 and he's raging and he turns around and like a pigeon poops on him or something like that, right? And like, yeah, it's like he got it, right? It's karma. He got what he deserved. And and we in our sick sinfulness love it. Uh, Right? We, 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 we like, actually, there is a good part of that. There is a good part of that where we long for justice. We long for the scales to be made right. We long for, for evil to not go unpunished. There's a good part of that. But there's also a bad part of that where we start to expect some sort of a direct one-to-one ratio, input-output. And, and God has not ordered the universe in that way. You know what we call this, if, if we wanted to be, if I can, let me, let me maybe rattle some, some sacred cows here. You know what sometimes this turns into in the church? Sowing and reaping. You guys know sowing and reaping? The Bible teaches a principle called, you know, sowing and reaping. If you plant seeds, you should expect that type of plant to grow. If you run around being rude to everybody, you should not be surprised when people are rude back to you. It is a truth. It's a general principle is sowing and reaping the deepest law written into the fabric of the universe? Or do we believe in something deeper? I'll tell you, so, I'll tell you what. I'm glad that sowing and reaping is not at the foundational baseline of my faith. Because if I was to sow what I've reaped, I would reap death. And, or if I was to reap what I've sowed, I would get death and destruction back. But I'm going to reap what Jesus has sown through his perfect life and death and resurrection. So I believe in sowing and reaping. It's just that there's something deeper going on. There's a Psalm, Psalm 73. And I just read this to you. (laughs) Preview of coming attractions. Just listen to what David says about the way the universe is working. God is indeed good to Israel. He's good to his people, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped and my steps nearly went astray. Translation, I almost lost it. I was having a hard time following God. Why? For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. 
and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. And because of this, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They just, they get anything they want. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. That's an image for you. The strutting tongues. Band name. (laughs) Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. And the wicked say things like, ah, how could God know? Does the Most High really know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. Quick show of hands. Anybody ever felt frustrated like this? Like, what is the deal? I thought there was sowing and reaping. I thought the good people get good things in their lives and the bad people get bad things in their lives. What is the deal, God? And I said it a moment ago. I'll say it again. I believe in sowing and reaping. It's just that there's something deeper than sowing and reaping that happens. If you're a Christian, you are under the law of the gospel which means you get what Jesus Christ earned for you. So I would say that karma ultimately is incompatible with the gospel. We are not karma people. We are gospel people. Yeah, if you are a a treacherous thief, don't be surprised if those are the types of plants that start to grow up in your lives that other people steal from you and take advantage of you. But if if you don't see those crops grow up immediately... Don't worry, God's not mocked. But if you are saying, I'm doing all these good things, I'm trying to be a good person, why do hardships happen to me? I'm sorry. But this is part of what it means to live in a broken and a fallen world. This is what it means to live in the tension and the mystery of not understanding why isn't everything a direct one-to-one mechanistic ratio? Why do I try to do good things and bad things happen? Why is someone else suffering? Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers from the 1800s, he says, never attribute any special sorrow endured by men to some special sin. You cannot judge a man's state before God by that which happens to him in the order of providence. And it is very unkind and ungenerous and almost inhuman to sit down like the friends of Job and suppose that because Job is greatly afflicted, he must therefore be greatly sinful. It is not so. All afflictions are not chastisements for sin. There are some afflictions that have quite another end and object. So when someone sits down in your community group and starts telling you about some deep suffering that they're going through, your automatic assumption should not be, well, what'd you do wrong? There is a place to examine and it must be done with great care and tenderness and patience and love. Hey, has, has, is there some choices you're making that have led to this? Because it, it could be, but don't assume that. Don't assume that. The world as as God allows it to be in his providence in this time and in this season is a lot more mysterious than that. So they ask this question, verse three, Jesus answered. And I love this. Jesus gives us just a straight answer. It is not that this man sinned or his parents. Oh, good. So what is it? That the works of God 
may be displayed in him. Well, that's not the reason I was looking for Jesus. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You know, speaking with people who are suffering, I actually had three different meetings this week with with people in our church who are experiencing suffering, some weighty suffering, deep, hard, painful things. And one of the people I was talking with said to me, you know, if I just knew why, well, then I could deal with it. Even if the answer wasn't something good, even if it wasn't something I really like deeply loved, at least if I knew the reason why, then I could, I could probably suffer better. But when it's mysterious, it makes it that much harder. If you're anything like me, and if I'm guessing these disciples, we wanted some concrete, tangible answer from Jesus. Was it A or was it B? Did he sin or did somebody else sin? And Jesus goes, no, it's not that. It's so that God might display his grand, amazing works in and through him. Whew, that's a tough pill to swallow. That's a tough pill to swallow. Jesus here says that this man's suffering has a bigger purpose and it's to show the power and the might and the glory of our God. I could take you through multiple places in the scriptures, the Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures, the New Testament, multiple places where the Bible affirms something similar to what Jesus just said. There's a purpose here, and it's far bigger and far more sovereign than you're realizing. If you have your Bibles and you want to flip over to 2 Corinthians 4 for just a moment, 2 Corinthians 4 verses 16 through, through 18 is one of the, again, it's a hard pill to swallow. The Apostle Paul knew a few things about suffering. Paul's writing about suffering and hardships and he says, therefore we do not give up. You don't have to raise your hand, but any of you ever felt like maybe giving up when you're in a time of suffering? I can't do this. I can't keep going. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. Took, uh, my oldest daughter forced me to go running yesterday. And uh, I have another kid living with our family right now, and he wanted to go too. And uh, he's not used to running and just multiple times, like, I can't keep going. I'm like, well, we kind of got to. Because the only other option is just this sidewalk is now where we live. <laughs> like, I'm, in my heart, like, I'm kind of with you. Like, I'm ready to be done too, but we, we got to keep going. We do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, getting a little bit older, you're like, Amen. Amen. The outer person is being destroyed or some translations say it's wasting away. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. Well, praise God for that. And then Paul says what I think might be some of the most offensive words in the entire Bible. He says, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. 
So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If you're not offended by those verses, you, I would, you might not be paying attention. Did you hear what he said? The sufferings we are going through right now are light and momentary. Light, and it's contrasted with this eternal weight of glory. It's the difference between, you know, a, a toy, right? My, my youngest daughter has a toy kitchen set. It's made out of plastic. It's filled with air. You can, you can pick it up. You can move it. She can pick it up. She can move it. Versus I, I, I remodeled a kitchen recently and hung actual cabinets on the actual wall. They were heavier. He's kind of using this contrast. Like it's not even, it's not even worth comparing, It's just light. It's trivial. Do you know what God's preparing for you? But if you've ever been in a season of suffering, that is offensive. How dare you call what I'm going through light? How dare you say that it might be inconsequential? I don't know about you, but I've gone through in my life a a number of different seasons of hardship and suffering, and it felt anything but light. It felt like a heavy weight and a burden was on my shoulders and I felt like I might be crushed. I can't go on. But Paul, like Jesus, says, nah, you're missing some perspective here. There's a perspective that you could have. If only you could see from God's vantage point you'd understand how valuable what he's doing is. This is a very imperfect analogy. All analogies ultimately fall apart, but it's, it's something like this. As a parent, my kids are very little. You know, if, if you have a young child, say a, let's say a one-and-a-half-year-old, two-year-old, and they're doing something, you're allowing them to do something, and it ends up, they get hurt. Now, you as a parent know maybe they're learning to walk, but then they fall over and they hurt themselves. And you, you as a parent know you've got this perspective like, well, yeah, they're, they're bummed out. They're, they're hurting. They're, they're crying. It legitimately hurt. It's real pain. It's not imaginary pain. But you know that them having to go through that is what ultimately will lead to them being able to walk and being able to run and being able to be a, a functional adult and and you have this perspective as a parent where you know like, yeah, the pain is real. It hurts. It's, it's not imaginary, but you allow them to go through it because you have the perspective and the wisdom to know just how valuable what's on the other side of it is. So your perspective versus that of a one-year-old, have you ever considered the difference between your perspective and that of the eternal God of heaven and earth? I would argue that they're not even comparable. Might it be possible that God has some perspective? God has some vantage point where he can see some things and he can allow some things to happen and he can know some things because there is an eternal weight of just a heavy, solid gold, not light and flimsy glory that awaits you? By the way, You need to put some of this theology of suffering together 
before you're in a season of suffering. It is really, really hard to build a solid theology of suffering when you're in the middle of it. God will use seasons of suffering sometimes to break down our terrible theologies of suffering. But I'm pleading with you, if you happen to be someone who is not in a season of suffering right now, don't be lulled into a false sense of security. I don't need to think about those things. I don't need to wrestle with those things. No, right now is the time when you do. You do need to shore up those foundations because it's not a matter of if, but when hardship comes, you want to have firm foundations in place. I sat with another uh, lady from our church who uh, has gone through just almost a nightmare situation the last few months. And uh, I sat with her, went and visited her in the hospital and we sat for an hour and we talked. And when I say we talked, she mostly talked. And uh, man, she blessed me. She's someone who has, has known the Lord from a young age and has trafficked in these waters and has built up some, some really strong theology of suffering. And I got to see it firsthand about, you know, if, 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 if she had not invested in these types of truths in years past, if she had not invested in these types of truths in, in times of smooth sailing, that, that she, even right now, as she's suffering and struggling, she has some firm foundation, some firm footing to stand on. Praise God. It's an incredible thing to witness. It was an incredible thing. She was talking. I was crying. I'm like, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to come and pray for you and you're supposed to cry. That's how this works. I was crying because it was so precious to see this lived out well in the lives of one of our, one of our members. The worst thing imaginable to a young child you as a parent, you as an adult can see, no, it's, there's something better there. The worst thing imaginable that we go through as human beings, what if God had a perspective and that he's trying to show to us, to mature us and to grow us, that there is a purpose, there is something to be seen on the other side of this. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse six, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Man, aren't you glad we don't do that? (laughs) We're having a special healing service. Come, it'll actually be out in the parking lot. There's a nice patch of dirt over by my car. Love to invite you to. (laughs) It's one of those moments where you kind of scratch your head. What's going on, Jesus? Actually, there's something pretty profound going on here, and I'll share it with you in a moment. He spit in the ground, made mud with a saliva, anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. John is wanting you to make sure, wanting to make sure you don't miss something there. So he went and washed and came back seeing the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this the same man who used to sit and beg? They're confused. Hold on a second. Who is this guy? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, it's not. It's not he. It's like him. It's not really. He just looks like him. And he kept saying, no, it's, I, it's me, guys. I am the man. Like, he doesn't mean that, like, I'm the man. He means it like, it's, I'm the dude. It's, I'm the guy you're thinking of. And they said, well, how were your eyes open? He's like, well, this guy called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they're like, where is he? 
And he said, I do not know. We'll pause in the story there and get into the aftermath because, oh boy, guess what? Jesus made some people upset by healing a guy again. We'll get into that next week more, but I want to say a few things about God's grace in these verses. I'm going to say three things about this, about God's grace. First of all, Jesus here enters into the mess of our suffering. I think there's something about the whole saliva mud situation that just shows us, man, real life is gross and messy. Let me ask you this. Be honest. How many of you have ever had a moment where you see somebody who's in a difficult place, they're going through some suffering, they're going through some hardship, and and just be honest, raise your hand, you felt the urge to kind of shrink back a little bit. Anybody? Okay, this could be you show up at your community group and somebody shows up and they start kind of dumping the truck about all the just hardships and things they're going through in life and you kind of feel the need to like, can we pull back and talk about something a little bit happier? This is the urge when you are sitting at a stoplight and there's a, a homeless person, a panhandler sitting there and, and, and they're looking at you and you kind of do the whole, like, I just don't want to make eye contact sort of thing. There's something in us, in our fallenness and in our broken humanity where we tend to shrink away from suffering. Jesus does no such thing. Praise God. Jesus enters into the mess of our suffering. John 1 tells us that the word became flesh. My wife and I were talking about a passage in Hebrews that she read recently where it talked about that it was fitting that Jesus should be made our high priest because of him going through all of the suffering that we go through. He has experienced it. He has tasted it. He has lived it. He has seen it. Praise God that Jesus did not look at us in our position of hopelessness and brokenness and suffering and shrink back and run away. But he dove in headlong. He went all the way to death on a cross. The most painful and humiliating suffering ever devised by humankind. Jesus went all the way to that for us. For us, Jesus spits in the ground and and makes mud and he goes right to the man and he he enters in to the mess that is our suffering. And when I say mess, I mean mess. I mean like really hard to figure out, really hard to clean up. Yesterday, again, happy anniversary, my children decided to make balloon filled with flour stress balls. I didn't know that third graders had that much stress going on, but they all decided to make flour-filled time bombs to explode all over the kitchen. And it looked like, it looked like something out of like the Muppets or something. They're just covered in flour. There are little white footprints running all around our den. I'm like, this is a mess. It's like, where do you even start? Because if I take the kid and try to clean the kid up, well, then I go and I actually mess up another room. If I start sweeping, then they run up and they mess. It's like, it's just a hopeless mess. And this is just flour and children we're talking about. Jesus enters into our mess. Are you glad that Jesus has entered into your mess? Man, that's a good, this is good news. And it's not just that Jesus enters into the mess of our suffering and then just kind of camps out with us there. Number two, Jesus brings new creation out of our suffering. There is something deeply significant about our savior, Jesus working with the dust of the earth and painting it on the man. 
When, when God works in the dust of the earth, what are we supposed to think of? Genesis 2. What does it say? God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and he breathed the breath of life into him and the man became a living soul. Here, Jesus, the God man, God made flesh is working in the dust of the earth. He's putting the mud on the man's eyes and bam, new creation happens. Did you notice how everyone's like freaking out? Is this the guy? Could this be him? Who is, is this really the guy? This couldn't possibly be him. Jesus is bringing new creation out of death. Jesus says, as long as I'm here in the world, I'm, I'm the light of the world. I'm here to bring light, not just to people's eyes, but to their souls. The eyes and the healing of the eyes is a sign pointing to an even deeper reality that Jesus has entered into the brokenness of our world to bring new life and new creation to make all things new again. Scholar and, and, and writer N.T. Wright, he puts it this way, and I love it because he ties it to the resurrection. He says, new creation always seems puzzling. Nobody in the story could quite figure out whether the man was the same or not. And sometimes when people receive the good news of Jesus, it so transforms their lives that people ask the same question. Is this really the same person? Can someone who used to lie and steal and cheat and swear become a truthful, wholesome, wise human being? The answer is yes. This can and does happen. In the same way, after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples are faced with the astonishing question, is this really Jesus? Is it really him? The answer again is yes. New creation does happen. Healing does happen. Lives can be transformed. And the question then is the one they ask the man, how? How did it happen? How does it happen? And the answer given throughout the gospel is, of course, through Jesus. Friends, in our suffering, I cannot guarantee you that your suffering will be 100% solved in this lifetime. I can, and I pray for you. I believe in a God who works miracles. I've seen physical healings with my own eyes. I've experienced a couple of them myself. God does miracles. Amen. But every miracle that he does in this lifetime serves as a signpost to point us to the reality that we have a new creation coming, friends. And in the new creation, there will be no brain tumors. There will be no Alzheimer's. There will be no hip replacements. There will be no knee replacements. There will be no suffering. There will be no sickness. There will be no death because Jesus is risen and we have hope upon hope upon hope. Amen? This is good news for us. Lastly, the grace in here is that Jesus uses our suffering to strengthen us for mission. Jesus said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then John goes, hey, by the way, that means sent. And he washes. And the next thing that happens is all these neighbors and all these relatives and all these friends, all these people like, what in the world is going on? This can't be the same guy. And then they get into, he's like, no, it is. I am the guy. I am the man. And they talk and they wrestle and then they go and find Jesus. And we'll get into all this next week, all these conversations. But the immediate effect of this man going through this suffering and having Jesus do a transformative work in his life is he now has a testimony. He now has an opportunity 
to share. I was blind. Now I see how, and he goes, I don't know. Some guy named Jesus. It's very, well, you call this a baby Christian. His theology is still forming. He's like, but he's got the, the most important thing he's got, right? I don't know. Jesus, like the Sunday school answer, right? He's got it. He's got it nailed. Great foundation. Great starting point. It's Jesus. I've seen God use uh, like miraculous healings or, or just things that are kind of unexplainable. I've seen God use these things so that people can have this testimony to then share, you know, hey, but I've also, you know what I've also seen? I've seen some people suffer for a long period of time and to suffer well and God use that to actually give them a testimony and an opportunity to share his grace with people. I've seen both. Now we would all, I think, would say we would prefer the miracle version, right? But sometimes God's asking us, no, I'm, I'm asking you to do the, the suffer well version and in so doing, give glory to God and to help invite others into this story of transformation that Jesus is doing. It's pretty amazing. Let me just say a few things quickly for those uh, who are not currently suffering. I would, ins- I, would in- I would encourage you and instruct you to really invest in community. All of the people that I know right now who are going through suffering, I think they would each say they are so deeply thankful for the people in their lives who are helping them, serving them, supporting them, practical, tangible ways, but just love, care, prayer. The time to invest in community is not when you're in the middle of the storm, but before. Every week, every week we get up, myself, one of the other elders, a staff member, hey, get plugged in, get connected. Let's get in relationship with somebody else because when those storms come, you're going to need other people in your life who can model Jesus' love to you. Number two, I would say, invest in these foundational truths. Build a theology of suffering before you're suffering. Build a robust theology of suffering before you start suffering. And then number three, I would encourage you, if you're not currently in a season of suffering, because of what Jesus has done for you, you're now free to run headlong towards others who are suffering. You don't have to shrink back. Because you know what? You don't have to have all the answers. Because you know why? You're not the one that's going to solve their suffering. You're there to show them the love of Jesus. You're there to show them that they're not alone. You're there to show them that you could just do maybe nothing. Right? You know, the, the, we mentioned the story of Job earlier. Job's friends, when they first showed up, it says they sat in silence for seven days. And that was the best that they, that's the best thing that they ever did. Because when they started talking, that all sorts of stuff gets like not good. Maybe the best you can do is just show up like, ah, just hug them, cry with them, love them, care for them. Jesus ran headlong toward us in our brokenness and our suffering. We are free to do the same. For those of you who are currently suffering, I, I just want to simply say to you this, cling to Jesus. Cling to his promises. Cling to his people. There might be a temptation or a tendency when you're suffering to withdraw, to pull away. Fight that. People around you are going to want to try to love you, care for you. They might not know how to do it very well. But just, just cling to the people. Cling to the promises. 
Jesus said the, the glory of God is going to be revealed through your suffering. Jesus has said, you know, that this, this suffering is light, it's momentary, it's temporary. There's an eternal weight of glory that awaits you. Jesus has said things like, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus says he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus is with you. Cling to him and cling to his promises. God, I ask and I pray right now that you would help us in whatever season or stage of life that we're in. For those who are suffering, God, I ask and I pray that you would minister your grace to them right now. That your peace would be in their hearts and your your promises would be in their minds. That they would have foundation and firm footing to stand on. God, for anyone who's here today who's who's not currently in in a place or a season of suffering, God, I ask that you would Help us to strengthen our bonds of community. Help us to strengthen our our truths that we stand on, these firm foundational truths. And God, would you help us to embody your love and your grace and your support to those who are suffering. And Jesus, we pray that your works would be revealed. We pray that you would get glory and we await the day of your return, Lord Jesus, when all the old things are made new. Lord Jesus, we see you face to face and we experience the world as you intended it to be, free from suffering and pain and sickness and sin and death. And we pray right now that we would hope in that and we would have tastes of that. Pray this in Jesus' good name, amen. Friends, I want to invite us into a time of response. And the first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and of our offerings. Let me just go back to the point I made earlier about we give as, we give as worship. Um, we, we, we don't give. I do believe that, again, sowing and reaping comes into play here. Being generous and, and giving and, and expecting God to bring blessings in your life. But the even deeper reason why we give, the deeper foundation underneath that is because Christ has given us himself. And so we give. I also want to invite us into a time of celebrating the Lord's table communion. And I, I celebrated communion earlier this week with one of our, one of our members who was suffering and just experiencing brokenness of body. And that this line that we read from first Corinthians 11, where it talks about Jesus body being broken for us. So he entered into that brokenness for us and whatever brokenness we're experiencing, he's, he's with us. I'm going to read from first Corinthians 11 and, and then I'll invite you to a time of reflection and prayer and when you're ready, we can, we can stand and sing. This is, this is what God's word says. It says, The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. His body was broken for us. And we're to do this in remembrance of him. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I invite you here in just a moment, the musicians will play instrumentally. I invite you to a time of just examining. God, where where in my heart have I not responded to the suffering of life well? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to receive your grace anew? And when you're ready to eat and to drink, I invite you to do so. And then we'll stand and we'll sing. 
Let me pray for us again. God, I, I thank you that you're with us in our suffering. God, I thank you even that these physical emblems, these, these tangible symbols, this, this bread and this cup, remind us, Jesus, that you're present with us even right now. I pray that we would bring our suffering to you, that we would find your grace in the middle of the brokenness. God, that you would bring sight to our eyes and you'd bring life to our hearts. And God, I pray you'd help us to be ministers of your grace to others who are suffering. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.